pulled for this book because there was really no need for invention. I, you know, you see a lot working as an EMT, so it's, and most EMTs are also storytellers, so it was very easy to recall the more exciting or more vibrant stories and and try to weave them into the book. Um, but a lot of Piper's story is also very fictional, and I did a lot of research too to try and pull in different aspects of the book, like the uh, the love story, especially the. Iraq war veteran and um, tried to research some or interview rather some Iraq war veterans to get an idea of their experience and how to pull that into the story and sort of make the comparison with what EMTs see. And so what inspired you to write this story as a writer? Did you start off as a writer in your life? I didn't, no. Um, I've been a performer for years but writing was a new Um, a new art form. I think what inspired me was really the feeling of of having seen so much had really built up in me and was kind of spilling over. I started to write these little short stories um, about some of the things I'd seen and some of the people I'd met working as an EMT, uh, specifically calls I'd responded to. And I first didn't show them to anyone and then kind of started sharing and um, that just kind of built its way. I think really it was just sort of taking on a new kind of confidence to be like, no, I think I could actually write a whole book and I would really love to do that. Um, you know, I'd always, I'd always loved books. So to the thought that I could somehow start with these, these stories and, and turn it into this art form that I'd loved for so long finally lost some of its scariness. <laughs> so. And you did it. it. Yeah. So take us into the novel. Read us an excerpt of your work. Okay, so this first part I'm going to read is one of the first calls that Piper goes on. Um, Her field training officer, the woman training her, her name is Ruth. We find him sprawled on his back in the office under an old Dell computer. The screensaver flashes a colorful montage, and I notice two things. The theme seems to be landscapes from around the world, and he doesn't look much like the picture we passed in the hallway. We, seven firefighters, Ruth, Carl, and I, descend on him like a swarm of insects. The captain hovers behind me, the only person still standing, and documents the multiplicity of events on his clipboard. I jump on my uncompressions as soon as a firefighter says the man is pulseless, and as soon as I do, I'm scared to look up. The flurry of activity around me is overwhelming, as is the man's stricken expression, and I can't afford to mess this up by becoming frozen and useless. In CPR class, we practiced on mannequins with blue foam torsos, pivoting plastic necks, and faceless heads that had fixed and modestly open mouths. If you gave breath right, you could see the dummy's chest rise and fall. If you did compressions right, you would hear a little clicking noise. The EMT instructor played the disco song, Staying Alive, which sets an appropriate tempo for proper CPR, and some students sang along as they pumped away at the foam. This is nothing like that. The sharp, rapid compressions I press into this man's sternum cause his gray chest hairs to quiver. Balanced on my knees, I focus my gaze on my arms, descending straight down and crossing at the wrists, my interlocked and pumping hands, the the ripples that shudder out through his fleshy chest, I watch his chest hairs tremble, and I look at his blotchy skin, a mix of purple and pale, vitiligo, I think it's called, and I ignore my right eye, which is watering. A single strand of my hair clings to it, but I'm not allowed to pause until the 30th compression, and there's no way to wipe it away. 
Hoping to push the strand to the outer rim of my eyeball, I blink rapidly in time with the compressions, and the strobe light effect makes the act of doing CPR feel absurd. 8, 9, 10, 11. Lock your elbows, Ruth hisses in my ear. Look at the monitor. You're not pushing hard enough. The monitor rests on the carpet next to him. She tells me I will know if my compressions are deep enough by how sharp the spikes are on the screen. Really lean into him, she says, and tell me when you get tired. I follow her advice and shove harder. His torso shudders and wobbles, and the spike rockets up. Seeing the improvement, I feel a small thrill. 23, 24, 25. The man belches from the caving pressure, and the smell is sour bile mixed with decaying chicken noodle soup. Ruth peers at me. She sees the way I am blinking. My right eye stings from that stupid piece of hair, and I've half-promised myself I'll shave my head when I get home to avoid this problem in the future. She wipes my face using the side of her forearm, her gloved fingers bent awkwardly so as not to contaminate me, and clears away the offending strand. 30. Stop CPR, says the lead medic. Finally bending my blood-filled arms, I lean my weight back on my heels. Thanks, I whisper. Her gaze fixed on the monitor screen, she doesn't appear to hear. The dramatic spikes my compressions created plunge into a subdued quiver above and below where the man's asystole line would be. V-fib, a paramedic calls out to the captain, setting up a shock. Squeezed shoulder to shoulder in the tiny office space, the large men work steadily around the patient's body, most crouching or on one knee. Three firefighters prepare IV lines and drugs, two unpack the innovation kit, and another, halfway in the act of cutting off the man's jeans with trauma shears, rocks to his feet and takes a step back. Everyone clear? The lead medic asks. He looks at the monitor and not at us. His finger hovers over a blinking button. A shock of 250 joules can stop the heart of anyone touching the patient, and there are horror stories of responders dying in the field because they weren't paying attention. Ruth narrows her eyes at me, and I hold my hands up and scoop my knees back in an exaggerated show of reliability. Shocking, he says, and presses the button. The man's body jerks upward, forward, almost airborne, but his give or take 160 pounds is too much weight for flight. Our patient's arms land at different angles than before, and his face swings toward mine. Mouth open and covered in spittle. Eyes fixed and dilated, he looks less like a dead person and more like someone who just received terrible news. Sinus Brady, yells the lead medic. The news ripples through all of us, pulling us together for a breathless, hovering instant. My eyes snap back to the monitor screen, and sure enough, there's sinus bradycardia, a too slow but nevertheless functional rhythm. The man has pulses again. We are lifesavers. So he lived. He did. What was... Now, so this is a true call that you went on. This is kind of a hybrid of two calls. I think some of the, um, one of the things that was interesting working as an EMT is just like the little details. So in the part before that, I talk about like what the pictures were in the hallway. There's just that surreal moment of going into someone's home and kind of seeing how they've decorated or noticing what the screensaver is in this weird adrenaline-rich situation, you know, and the stuff that sticks in your brain in that moment can be kind of odd. It, it was interesting reading that, that the picture frames were starting to turn pink, mm-hmm. and in that moment when he hit the, um, they put the machine on him, that he his 160-pound body goes in the air, so instead of it looking as if his heart was being restarted, it looked as if he had received bad news. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you after your first intense call to go home? What was life like for you as a human being? Mm, 
what kind of things happen? I mean, I think I think what can start to happen is a little bit of a separation in how people talk to you or how, you know, if you, let's say you have a roommate and um, she's an accountant or something, you say, how was your day? The kind of answers you get are sort of more digestible maybe. And there's a way in which if you're seeing um, some of the worst of the worst things that human beings can do to each other or experience, then coming home and someone saying like, how's your day? And trying to answer that can... I think be almost harder for the person hearing it than the person whose job it is to do that work. Like there, I think there's kind of a distance that can happen um, between you as as the person who's around this all the time and has kind of gotten used to it or at least signed up for it, and then the people in your life who are trying to understand what it is you go through and don't have the reference in the same way. So if that um, if I had been your roommate and I'd have said to you. Courtney, how was your day? Mm-hmm. What would you have said? Well, if you save somebody's life, then you feel really good, so it's fine. <laughs> you can just be like, you know, we had this crazy call, and this person seemed like they were a goner, but we shocked them twice. He actually came back. The, you know, the wife was in shock, but really excited. You know, that kind of story is a little easier. I think when you lose somebody or um, or you just deal with something that's really hard to witness, I guess, and then trying to find a way to offload that. I mean, I think that's part of why I felt like I had to write this book is like trying to find a way to digest some of this stuff that can be harder to explain to people in a sort of daily rhythm. Um, and you also note, and particularly that this this journey, the writing of the journey, the experience of it also connected you deeper to your humanity. Yeah. How is it? Hmm... Um, I mean, I think I think that points more to what art does. I want to say, like, I, I mean, that's one of my favorite things about um, listening to music or seeing a performance or reading a good book is you get to step into somebody else's world. You get to connect to humanity more. You know, you get to sort of like receive something or or ha- like maybe experience a small shift in your perspective based on how you're taking that in. Um, and I think the act of creating something can do that too. It can tie in for you what feels really important um, and and kind of ground you again, you know. Tell us about the character Ruth. She's, uh, as I began to read her journey, so Ruth seems a, a bit, at this point in her career, a bit detached mm-hmm. uh, and sort of, for lack of being in a way to say it, a bit hard on oh, on, hard on the character yeah. <laughs> on, on Piper she's hard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so tell me about her what is how did you come to bring her this character as you, it's very you, I mean we all, we as I was reading it you certainly got immediately the difference between the two there's mm-hmm. Piper who's nervous who's afraid who wants to make everything right and there's Ruth mm-hmm. who's like get it done yeah tell yeah. us about how you created this character in your writing um, I mean, Ruth is really fun, uh, and there aren't a lot of female EMTs, but, you know, it's it's exciting when you find other female EMTs, and I became a field training officer, and so did a couple other um, women that I knew, and so getting to sort of watch each other teach and how you figure out how to train new employees and, and 
really make sure that they know how to get the job done and that that's your first priority and any kind of reaction you have has to come later. Um, and I think the thing with Ruth, and this is something Piper kind of figures out along the way, is that it sort of seems like she lacks compassion because she's so, she's such a drill sergeant. Um, but I think at some point Piper starts to realize, like, this is actually what compassion can look like in this very bizarre way, is that the person who, you know, shows up on scene ready to go, wants to get everything done and make it happen, and just has this, like, clean, you know, direct... I'm going to take care of you, whether it's business-like or not. I, I think that can, um, that's what a lot of times people need. So it it is compassionate in a certain way. You can't show up and, and you know, try to take care of someone emotionally. That's not what they need in that moment. Yeah. Most it's of not the a time. time for warm fuzzies when exactly. someone is not breathing. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, stop the bleeding. That's right. more stop important. The <laughs> in the first part of the story, you say that if you, you, you actually take a well-known medical scene, uh, uh, no accident, mm -hmm. in the beginning of the book, you say when you show up, the blood must be, the the, the breath must be coming in oh, and out. Air goes in and out. Right. Blood goes round and round. Um, air goes in and out. Blood goes round and round. Any variation of this is bad. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I actually was learning a lot reading your novel. Mm -hmm. Not only was I learning a lot from a medical point of view, which of course, uh, but also just as a human being. On, on my way here to the station, I saw the paramedics mm -hmm. stopped, and I thought, "Wow, we see this. We hear the sirens. We see the paramedics." But you actually are the first paramedic I've actually met and spent time with. Um, and to talk about and to read a novel, just you saying that a lot of the people you work with are storytellers. Mm -hmm. Who would have thought it? <laughs> I mean, you, of course, have stories to tell. So also, this is about the love interest mm -hmm. of Piper's. She is falls in love with a woman she uh, is uh, checking out at a grocery store <laughs> yeah. who is from the Iraq War. Mm -hmm. Tell us about this character. Ayla. Um, Ayla, yeah. Yeah, so Piper, at the beginning of the book, she's um, she's kind of been stuck for a few years, just stuck in her life and hasn't been in a relationship and has, like, really struggled with taking risks. And then she kind of takes a lot of risks all at once. So one is becoming an EMT, um, and the other is asking out this woman that she had a crush on for months, although she didn't really know her. Um, and the woman says yes, and then they start dating and Ayla I mean part of the idea with Ayla or what um, excited me about her as a character was this idea that um, she's dealt with some really traumatic events in her life um, especially the basically serving in the Iraq war being the main one um, and also experiencing an injury she had a traumatic brain injury while she was over there so she that's like a daily struggle for her is dealing with the signs and symptoms of that and it's definitely changed her life and changed her personality and her relationships so she's constantly you know struggling a little bit with that but she's also very um she acknowledges the struggle she meets it head on she's very honest about where she's at and who she is in a way that i think is very brave and that piper hasn't quite learn to do yet so there's sort of this interesting tension between them um and that piper is like sort of newly struggling with how to integrate things and stay grounded in who she is even as these kind of big um turmoils come up 
And Piper also has ended a relationship. Yeah, she, at the beginning of the story, she's, um, yeah, had her heart broken yes. and gotten betrayed and has been Very dead betrayed. in jobs and yes. it's just a big old mess. So. so, do you have an excerpt you'd like to read about this love affair or the beginning of the love affair oh because it's very interesting in that your character that comes back from war suffers from post-traumatic stress syndrome right and that she also in the midst of wakes up out of the night and is in the past was strangling one of her lovers yeah it's kind of a well in Ayla's version of things it's kind of a joke that she makes but Piper realizes that it's real but basically she's saying that when she got back from the Iraq war um, and was home again she used to wake up and her arm would be around her partner as though she were choking her yeah. or her partner would wake her up because screaming her name because she'd sort of turn violent in her sleep um, I think it's called night tremors um, but yeah a lot of people experience just sort of the aftershocks of of dealing with trauma and then trying to assimilate back into um civilian life i guess um let me grab that and it's it what i found also is the raw honesty between the two of them as they try to negotiate becoming friends becoming possible lovers mm -hmm. with there's a raw honesty that they both are offering each other there's not the tea and crumpet yeah kind of a thing like hey how are you what's your birth sign right what kind of foods do you like <laughs> they go straight in to some real raw honesty which i think there's circumstances of where they're both coming from mm -hmm. allows them that opportunity that they don't have to play games and any games they are playing they're aware of them that they're games of survival like i'm trying to survive this moment exactly okay yeah so this is kind of um one of piper's descriptions of ayla from a little later on she grinds her teeth but she denies it she swears i snore but i deny it during the day she doesn't twitch but she does bite her nails sometimes when her anxiety kicks in she gets distant and cold i ask her what's wrong and she gets defensive so I slip into being wary and introverted, reading a book while she cleans surfaces already wiped down, while she scrubs at bathroom mildew like it's personal. After busying herself for a while, she'll relax enough to allow herself to be soothed, to be seen, to be touched. She'll welcome me back into the room with joking fondness like I'm a guest who's just arrived. I can see her constant effort to balance herself, how to live in the world, and how to live with me in it. When we stay at my apartment, I cook for us. Mostly we stay at her studio, where she makes scrambled eggs and country potatoes, tuna casserole, vegetable barley soup. We don't try to cook together. For her, it's a reminder of a lesson learned anew since her injury, a not-quite-seamless reintegration into normal living. To keep it from being a struggle, she uses recipes that outline every last detail, with handwritten notes from over the years, what pot or pan or knife works best, exactly what setting to put the stove, stove burner on. A list taped to the microwave explains what materials are acceptable to put inside, and a reminder taped eye-level on the freezer door urges her to check expiration dates before eating anything. Although she stores her leftovers in a complicated Tupperware system she refuses to teach me, she has no objection to my doing the dishes. By this time, she's relaxed. The cooking is over, the meal eaten. 
We'll put music on and sing together, my hands covered in suds, her husky voice a surprising low soprano, while she waits to dry each item and put it where it belongs. Her new job is dog walking, and her reputation has spread quickly. Her charge now covers a wide spread of breeds from a Great Dane to a Malamut to a Catalan sheepdog. On my days off, if we stay in, I quiz her on material for the online biology class she's taking, the warm-up course before fall's fully loaded semester. If we go out, we wander through Silver Lake, passing cafes and bars and boutiques, admiring the murals. She'll show me a new residence spotted on one of her walks, perhaps a house shaped like an igloo but with a porch, or a gated monstrosity surrounded by palm trees. On nights when she gets the fierce headaches, I'll wake up too, thinking for a moment that I heard the phone ring at station 710, thinking I have to put my boots on and respond to a call. When I remember where I am, I throw an arm around her warm, naked waist and drop back to sleep. Her body's burdens make her shape and density more certain. I know where her center is. I know where her edges are. I feel cocooned in her arms every night we spend together. I know exactly what I'm holding on to, and it has gotten hard to fall asleep without her weight around me. She has yet to strangle me in her sleep. Oh, that's so lovely. Do you think that Piper would have been prepared to love this woman had she not gone through this training, had she not taken this leap in her own life? Um, I think if she hadn't been so hurt prior to meeting Ayla, she she wouldn't have been quite as drawn to her. Because I think part of the appeal is how Ayla is able to deal with things and be honest about them and not need to, like you were saying, sort of sugarcoat it or talk about tea and crumpets, yeah. or, but just kind of be real about. And how was Piper hurt? Um, just from her prior relationships um you know her mother abandoned her when she was 10 she'd just gotten um cheated on and broke up with someone right before the book begins um so she's just had trouble i think trusting people or knowing who to trust in the story i had a sense that piper so her mother dies in a skiing accident mm -hmm. she abandons her uh, at 10 years old yeah and i had a sense that she was drawn to this work as if she's trying to save her mother. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I got that right. I, I like that, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I thought about it quite that way, but it definitely there is this way in which even as she's running calls, it's reminding her of her mom and this and this thing that she can't um, that she can't grasp. You know, it's, it, her mother's always been out of her grasp because of the abandonment and because she's now dead. So I think there is this way, and we that she's getting reminded as she's on the job of that and and yeah it makes a lot of sense that you would have seen that that she's sort of trying to fix that problem and can't is there an excerpt you have of your mom that you could read to us and then also want to uh, make sure in the last because we have a few minutes left that where would the audience be able do you have a website i do um it's just courtneymarino.com um spell that out for them yeah so c-o-u-r-t-n-e-y M-O-R-E-N-O dot com. And it's so interesting because your voice is so light and the <laughs> reading is so loud with wonderful emotions. Very intense. <laughs> mm. Very intense. Okay, except about uh, Piper's mother. Okay. When my mother had her accident, she'd been skiing with Sergio. Somehow they'd gotten separated. The rescue team found her a few hours later, half buried in the snow. 
When we got the news, Dad, my brother Ryan, and I took our first family vacation in over a decade. I hated Colorado, but it had never really stood a chance. When we arrived, every temperature felt wrong. It was too cold outside and too warm inside, and I couldn't get comfortable. I grumbled constantly, willing to talk about everything except my mother, everything except what little I knew or could remember about her. But the worst part of the whole thing was watching my father meet the person my mother had ran off to be with. I wanted so badly for Dad to treat Sergio coldly or with superiority, to do something besides shake his hand and start crying. I wanted to remind him of the line he'd left on my voicemail a thousand times, the one that goes, ignore everything you can't drink or punch. I want to thank you. That is our guest. You've been listening to Javelin, cover to cover open book, Javelin's Bistro, and you've been listening to Courtney Marino, her new novel, In Case of Emergency. And again, if you want to see a free uh, show, Actors Ensemble of Berkeley and Infernal Theater Presents, Penthesilia. For more information, www.aeoofberkeley.org. See you next time. Is the Tall Man Happy? That's the name of a dazzling new film by Michelle Gondry. The film is an animated conversation with Noam Chomsky. Is the Tall Man Happy will show at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland on Wednesday, September 17th at 7 p.m. in a benefit for the Middle East Children's Alliance, and it's wheelchair accessible. Riveting, intimate, and exuberant, this conversation between the filmmaker and Noam Chomsky is a movie that celebrates the life of a great mind and makes a case for the mind that knows less but keeps on asking. Is the Tall Man Happy at the Grand Lake Theater, 3200 Grand Avenue in Oakland, September 17th. For info, 